Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On the morning of March 29, 1971, Donald Chessman and John Wells left their homes in Los Angeles, California, and headed out into the Ventura County wilderness. The two friends planned to spend the weekend far off the grid at Sespe Hot Springs, where they could fish and enjoy an escape from city life. They set up camp at the west fork of a creek eight miles up the hiking trail. Chessman and Wells cast their reels and allowed the sounds of nature to wash their worries away. It was exactly the kind of relaxing trip the two men wanted, at least until Chessman noticed something strange in the water. A strange lump jutted out from between two boulders on the other side of the stream. The men were too far away to get a good look, so they decided to wade through the water and investigate. The two men pressed through the rushing water, and they finally recognized the strange thing in the water. A dead body. The corpse was severely decomposed and covered in animal bites. Worst of all, one arm had been torn off, leaving a gaping wound at the right shoulder. Chessman and Wells would soon learn that the body belonged to a lawyer named Ronald Hughes. Before his disappearance, Hughes was working for the Manson family cult until he might have become yet another victim of the infamous Charles Manson. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our only episode on the mysterious death of Manson family lawyer, Ronald Hughes. We'll look at how Hughes became acquainted with the famed cult and how their falling out may have led to his gruesome disappearance. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. A few minutes past midnight on August 9, 1969, a dilapidated Ford Galaxy came to a stop outside actress Sharon Tate's house on Cielo Drive in Los Angeles. Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, Patricia Krenwinkel, and a 24-year-old Charles Tex Watson sat inside the car. They were all members of Charles Manson's cult, and that night, they had a job to do. Tex was the first out of the car, He scurried up a nearby telephone pole and cut the phone lines. 
Then he led the group over Sharon Tate's fence and up the dark Benedict Canyon driveway. Suddenly, they were blinded by a pair of headlights. Tex ordered the three women to hide in the bushes as he approached the car. Inside was an 18-year-old named Steve Parent. Tex pointed a 22 caliber revolver through the window and ordered Steve out of the car. Then he shot the young man four times in the chest. Next, the Manson family members made their way inside the house. They dragged all four people inside into the living room and bound them together by their necks. When one of Sharon Tate's friends asked who the intruders were, Tex told him, I'm the devil. I'm here to do the devil's business. The victims who struggled or protested were shot and killed on the spot. The ones who kept quiet only delayed the inevitable. By the end of the night, everyone who had been sharing an evening at 10050 Cielo Drive was dead, including the 26-year-old Tate and her unborn child. As the cult members scrambled to leave the murder scene, 21-year-old Susan Atkins dipped her finger in Tate's blood and wrote the word pig on the front door. The following night, the same group struck again. This time, they brought three more assailants with them, including 35-year-old Charles Manson himself. But this time, they weren't on the prowl for a celebrity mansion. After driving around the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, they settled on a modest home belonging to middle-class couple Lino and Rosemary LaBianca. Both Lino and Rosemary were tied up and had pillowcases yanked over their heads. They were stabbed to death, and Tex Watson used his knife to carve the word war in Lino's chest. Another cult member wrote Rise, Death to Pigs, and Helter Skelter on the refrigerator and living room walls using Lino's blood. Finally, the whole group took turns stabbing Rosemary with various weapons and household items. The woman was already dead, but every cult member had to play their part. Over the course of two nights, the Manson family's terrifying rampage put an end to the idealistic peace and love movement. Charles Manson and his group of followers may have looked like one of many hippie communes springing up in the late 1960s, but they were actually a brutal and sadistic cult. Manson had convinced his followers that he was the second coming of Christ. But the sermons he preached were a far cry from anything one might find in the Bible. He was obsessed with the notion of an impending race war that would bring about the apocalypse. Manson called it Helter Skelter after the Beatles song on the White Album. Both the Tate and LaBianca murders were Manson's attempts at jump-starting Helter Skelter. He reportedly ordered his followers to commit these gruesome attacks in hopes that they would be mistaken as racially driven crimes and force tensions between the government and the black community to boil over. These murders did not successfully bring about an apocalyptic race war, but they did send shockwaves of terror throughout the country. Americans were forced to grapple with the fact that the summer of love had passed and something incredibly disturbing was left in its wake. It cast a dark shadow across the hippie movement at large. For many, it confirmed their worst suspicions about the subculture. 
By August 12, 1969, news of both murders had been picked up by international news outlets. At first, the LAPD didn't think the massacres were related, even though their similarities were obvious, right down to the same words written in blood at both crime scenes. Somehow, it took almost two months before the truth came out. In October, the Manson family's ranch in Death Valley National Park was raided in connection with a series of stolen cars. As police rounded up the cult members, someone mentioned that the Manson family might have been involved with more than just auto theft. Hey man, watch it. This is buckskin. Save it. The judge isn't going to care what you're wearing. He'll just be happy to get another dirtbag hippie carjacker off the streets. <laughs> Hold up, that's what you're here about? <laughs> you pigs really don't know what you're doing, do you? <sighs> Drag me out of bed over boosting cars after Sadie stuck that knife in a poor Gary. What are you saying? Susan Atkins, the girl right over there. Why don't you get me out of these cuffs and snap them on her, man? She's always bragging about it. Shut up and get in the car. We'll deal with your little girlfriend later. The LAPD soon investigated the tip and found 21-year-old Susan Atkins guilty of the murder of Manson associate Gary Hinman. Atkins was sent to Sybil Brand Institute, the biggest woman's correctional facility in Los Angeles County. The young woman always seemed to be in a strangely bubbly and cheerful mood, even behind bars. Atkins, or Sadie as she was known to her fellow cult members, would often break out and dance or song at random hours throughout the day. It wasn't long before her antics earned her a spot at the top of the prison's social hierarchy. But on November 6, 1969, Atkins got too comfortable with one of her new friends, Virginia Graham. And she started to share a little more than she should have. Sadie, I know you're a talkative one, but you really ought to be more careful about what you say in here. Don't be such a square. I can just tell that you can be trusted. I can feel it just by looking. Your aura, it's this beautiful fuchsia color. It radiates right off you. Uh, thanks. Just be careful is all I'm saying. I'm plenty careful. Plus, I haven't even told you everything. There's this one case. The police are so off track. They don't even know what they're looking for. What are you talking about? The Hinman guy? No, the one on Benedict Canyon. You aren't talking about Sharon Tate. You know who did it, right? No one does. You happen to be looking right at her. Atkins would soon regret placing her trust in Virginia Graham. Graham knew that she could use information about the Tate murders to help leverage a better deal for herself. So she kept asking Atkins for more details, and the young woman was happy to share. It wasn't long before Graham had a full-blown confession from Atkins and extensive details about both the Tate and LaBianca murders. She and her friend at Sybil Brand, Ronnie Howard, brought everything straight to the LAPD. Sharon Tate's husband, the director Roman Polanski, gave the two inmates a portion of his $25,000 reward fund for helping to solve his wife's vicious slaying. And soon, Susan Atkins and four other members of the Manson family, including Charles Manson himself, faced charges of murder.
Coming up, the cult goes to trial and meets their new lawyer, Ronald Hughes. The worst serial killer, the creepiest cult, the most outrageous con? If you're a true crime fan, you've probably pondered these things. Well, now you can get answers, or at least some passionate opinions. Every week on our podcast, Crime Countdown, my co-host Ash and I rank 10 unsettling crimes centered around a common theme, debating each case with just a hint of humor to lighten the mood. Elena and I may not be experts, and we may not always agree, but we're counting down anyway. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Crime Countdown. Listen free on Spotify. And now, back to our story. In the fall of 1969, 35-year-old Charles Manson and five of his cult followers were arrested in Los Angeles, California for the brutal Tate LaBianca murders. Manson loudly proclaimed his innocence and ordered his acolytes to do the same. But when 21-year-old Susan Atkins was threatened with a death penalty, she agreed to flip on her friends and speak for the prosecution. When she took the stand, her testimony of the night she murdered Sharon Tate was chilling. I looked into her face knowing that anything that I would say, I was saying to myself, in a sense reassuring myself. I looked at her and said, Woman, I have no mercy for you. And I knew at that time I was talking to myself, not to her. It became clear that Atkins' ability to get carried away in her storytelling was as much of a problem in the courtroom as it was in the jailhouse. In her December testimony to a grand jury, she directly implicated Charles Manson, as well as four other members of the Manson family. But in early 1970, Atkins recanted her testimony completely. When asked to explain... She implied that Manson threatened to kill her and her family if she didn't comply. Regardless of the reason, Atkins lost her death penalty immunity. She would be tried alongside all her fellow cult members. But her flip-flopping was the least of the court's issues. The real problem was Charles Manson himself. Manson had the right to a lawyer. But when the court appointed a reputable attorney named Paul Fitzgerald to represent him, The cult leader had other plans. Only six days later, Manson appeared before Judge William Keene and asked to fire his new lawyer. On what grounds would you like Mr. Fitzgerald removed? Well, sir, I believe it best for the case and for the court if I represented myself. I am in no way convinced that you are competent to represent yourself. Your Honor, there is no way I can give up my voice in this matter. If I can't speak in my own defense and converse freely in this courtroom, then it ties my hands behind my back. And if I have no voice, then there is no sense in having a defense. You understand that it is in your best interest to have a lawyer present during this case. Lawyers play with people. I am a person and I don't want to be played with. Judge Keene allowed Manson to move forward with his strange plan, but insisted that he meet with an attorney, Joseph Ball, who could help prepare him for the trial. And while the seasoned legal veteran did his best to walk Manson through the ins and outs of defending oneself in court, it didn't have quite the effect that Keene had hoped for. I found Mr. Ball to be a very nice gentleman. He probably understands everything there is to know about law. 
but he doesn't understand the generation gap. He doesn't understand free love society. He doesn't understand people who are trying to get out from underneath all of this. Mr. Manson, do you understand your fundamental lack of experience and understanding in the courtroom and the uh, severity of the crimes of which you have been charged? It is in your best interest to listen to the advice of a lawyer All who... my life, I've taken your advice. Your faces have changed, but it's the same court, the same structure. All my life, I've been put in little slots, Your Honor, and I went along with it. I have no alternative but to fight you back any way I know, because you and the district attorney and all the attorneys I have ever met are all on the same side. So no, I haven't changed my mind. Fine. It is the opinion of the court that you are making a sad and tragic mistake, but I can't talk you out of it. Mr. Manson, you can now act as your own lawyer. By March 6th, 1970, Judge Keene regretted those words. Manson's behavior in court was unprofessional and erratic. Do you feel blame? Are you mad? Do you feel It became clear that this case could not move forward with Manson representing himself. So the judge revoked Manson's privilege to act as his own lawyer. He was appointed a new attorney, but Manson found the man too straight-laced. He requested a new one after two weeks, but this time he had someone in mind. At first, Judge Keene was pleased, at least until he found out who Manson wanted to hire. His name was Ronald Hughes, an inexperienced 35-year-old attorney whose psychedelic drug habit and belief in ESP had earned him the nickname The Hippie Lawyer. But as much as it seemed like the guy had fallen into his profession by mistake, Ronald Hughes had dreamed of becoming a lawyer from a young age. Ronald Hughes was born in Los Angeles on March 16, 1935. He always dreamed of going to law school, but his life first took him to the Korean War and then to college in New York City before he finally returned back home to California to attend UCLA School of Law. Unfortunately, his dreams didn't quite live up to the reality of law school. Hughes failed the bar exam three times before finally passing in the summer of 1969. The guy stood out like a sore thumb among his colleagues. Hughes was a hippie, and he wasn't concerned with hiding it from his more conservative co-workers. He grew his beard out to Santa Claus length and was soon proudly touting his new nickname, the Hippie Lawyer. But Charles Manson didn't want Hughes just for his progressive background. The lawyer seemed incompetent and inexperienced, and Manson liked it that way. He wanted someone who could be easily manipulated to help him get his co-defendants to testify that he had nothing to do with the murders. But Manson seemed to quickly realize that Hughes could be more helpful elsewhere. Because soon, he decided to fire the lawyer, freeing the man up to defend 20-year-old Manson family member Leslie Van Houten. This was likely a calculated move on Manson's part. Van Houten's former attorney had been pushing the teen to say that the cult leader had brainwashed her and should be held fully responsible for the crimes. Manson likely hoped that by enlisting Hughes, an inexperienced lawyer with a personal bias towards Manson and his hippie followers, he could help keep the others from turning on him. 
And it wasn't long before Hughes's incompetence began to show. The lawyer frequently staggered into court wearing mismatched suits covered in food stains. And he had a very short temper. When prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi introduced evidence that made Hughes mad, the lawyer loudly cursed him out in court. Judge Keene immediately leapt in to break it up. Now, Mr. Hughes, you are either to pay a fine of $75 or you will be forced to spend the night in prison. I am a pauper, Your Honor. So be it. Since he couldn't pay, Judge Keene sent Hughes to jail. But the hippie lawyer didn't mind. He was much happier to spend the night in a cell than fork over money to the government. But as the trial continued, Hughes eventually got his act together. He actually proved himself to be an asset to the Manson family on a number of occasions. His understanding of the hippie subculture and the world of hallucinogenic drugs was incredibly useful, especially in the cross-examination of Manson family member Linda Kasabian. Kasabian was offered immunity from prosecution in exchange for serving as a witness. But Hughes managed to undermine her credibility with only a few questions. Miss Kasabian, is it true that you had often partaken the hallucinogenic drug LSD? And you are aware of the fact that these substances can cause irreversible damage to memory? Can't say I've heard that. Or maybe it slipped my mind. A few more questions. After speaking to some of your friends, it appears as though on several instances you've claimed to be a witch. Well, I thought I was a witch, yes, but I didn't have any powers. Okay, and you've also stated that you were initially drawn to Mr. Manson because of his vibrations? Of course. Just like that, Hughes had shown the straight-laced jury how far out there Kasabian was. They quickly dismissed her as a witness. Manson's plan to dodge responsibility was working. And Hughes was a big part of that success. But it wasn't long before Hughes started caring less about what Manson wanted and more about what would be best for his client, Leslie Van Houten. With each passing day in court, he began to understand the greater significance of criminal defense. Like any good lawyer, he did not want to see his client take the fall for a crime she did not commit. And so, on November 16th, The defense rested their case before they could present their counter-testimony. This was a calculated act of resistance against Manson's plan to use his female followers to absorb the blame for the murders. And Hughes was at the helm. Manson was furious. So were his faithful followers. Van Houten and the other Manson family members stood up in the stands and screamed their opposition. Please! We must be heard! You must let us testify. This case is built on lies. You're all a bunch of sneaky, sly animals. We were the ones who killed. Not Charlie. We acted alone. Leave him out of this! Hughes and the other attorneys had predicted that Manson's followers were willing to take the fall at any cost, even if it meant outright lying about his involvement. They wanted to prevent any of the young followers from giving a false and incriminating testimony. Hughes may not have been the model criminal defense lawyer, but his moral compass was strong enough to prevent him from letting his client take the fall for Charles Manson. Manson knew what Hughes had done. 
and the cult leader had a few menacing words for the hippie lawyer as the court went on recess for the Thanksgiving holiday. Hughes, come here, boy. Listen, Charlie, don't be so sore. We'll figure this thing out. Look at me. Listen to me. I do not want to see you in this courtroom again. Hughes may have just made an enemy of a man accused of orchestrating nearly a dozen murders. But he didn't let Manson's possible threat get to him. He strolled out of the courtroom that day feeling carefree. To the hippie lawyer, he was just doing his job. Unfortunately for him, Charles Manson would soon get his wish. Because when the court resumed session... Hughes was nowhere to be seen. Coming up, Ronald Hughes goes missing. And now back to the story. On November 20th, 1970, the Los Angeles County Court announced a 10-day recess in the case of The People versus Manson. Leslie Van Houten's attorney, 35-year-old Ronald Hughes, wanted to make the most of his time off. Hughes decided to spend the weekend camping with two friends, James Forsher and Lauren Elder. The group traveled to a secluded patch of woods a few miles away from Sespe Hot Springs in Ventura County. Hughes's car was broken, so Elder drove the group in her Volkswagen. Not long after the group arrived at the craggy terrains of the Los Padres National Forest, the campgrounds were hit by flash floods and rainstorms. The next day, on November 28th, Elder and Forsher decided that the weather was too bad to handle and they wanted to return to Los Angeles. But Hughes wanted to take full advantage of his days off. His friends agreed to leave him behind, So they left him with their van and hitchhiked back to the city. Two days later, on November 30th, 1970, the Manson family trial was set to resume. But on the first day back in court, Ronald Hughes was nowhere to be found. Authorities assumed that Hughes was still in Ventura County, and a team was dispatched to scour the area for him. The search began promptly on December 2nd, The team first came across Elder's Volkswagen van, just where she had left it days earlier. When they looked through the vehicle, they didn't find any clue to Hughes' whereabouts, but they did notice a few of his court documents scattered around. For some reason, Leslie Van Houten's psychiatric report was missing. The team continued their search on foot and then switched to helicopters, but nothing turned up any sign of Hughes. Police even called in his two friends, Lauren Elder and James Forsher, for questioning, but they stuck to their stories. After passing polygraphs, the pair were both sent home. Police were completely baffled until March of 1971, when the LAPD received a strange anonymous tip. Hello, LAPD homicide. I'm calling about the Manson lawyer, Hughes. I believe he was a missing person. He still is, Ronald Hughes. What about him? Search the Barker Ranch. Barker Ranch? The Manson family place? You're saying he's hiding out there? Not hiding. Buried. What's that supposed to mean? Did Manson have him killed? Who is this? Hello? Hello? 
The LAPD raced out to Barker Ranch, but they didn't find any sign of Hughes or his remains. But the idea that the Manson family had a hand in his disappearance made sense. Charles Manson was the kind of man who would want revenge against the lawyer who betrayed him in court. But the LAPD couldn't prove it. They weren't even certain that Hughes was dead. At least, not yet. On March 29, 1971, two fishermen discovered a body that was lodged in between two boulders roughly seven miles from the campsite where Hughes was last seen. The corpse was naked and severely decomposed. Its entire right arm appeared to be torn from the socket. The man's teeth were one of the only parts of him left intact. Using dental records, police eventually identified him as Ronald Hughes. Unfortunately, Ronald's corpse had decayed so greatly, they could no longer determine his cause of death. And death seemed to be in the air. That same morning, Charles Manson, Leslie Van Houten, Susan Atkins, and Tex Watson were sentenced to death for the Tate-LaBianca murders. Even though Manson was finally behind bars, authorities were no closer to agreeing on the cause of death for the cult leader's ex-lawyer. The Ventura County Sheriff investigating the case believed the death was accidental. The massive rainstorm that took place during Hughes' camping trip might have caused the nearby creek to flood. As far as the sheriff was concerned, Hughes was likely dragged away by the currents and drowned. But those who were more connected to the Manson family had very different theories. Manson prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi was convinced that Hughes was murdered and that Manson himself was behind it. Bugliosi was furious about the Ventura Sheriff's assessment and demanded a follow-up investigation, but his request was denied. Evidence may have been scarce, but Bugliosi believed that the Manson family were responsible for far more murders than they were charged for, and a former cult member named Sandra Good agreed. On December 22, 1975, Good told a documentary crew that the Manson family had been responsible for nearly 40 deaths, including Ronald Hughes. Then in 1976, Bugliosi received an anonymous phone call that continued to strengthen his suspicions. Hello? This Bugliosi? Manson's Bugliosi? I hear you've been interested in the Hughes case. May I ask who I'm speaking to? That doesn't matter. Just know that I used to be in the family, and I know for a fact that he had Hughes killed. Manson did? Right. From the day that Hughes tried to get Leslie to testify against him, Charlie wanted him dead, and he got what he wanted. All anonymous tips and speculation aside, police have never been able to find any incriminating evidence tying the Manson family to Hughes' death, or proof that he was even murdered at all. Charles Manson himself died in prison on November 19, 2017, at the age of 83. The truth about the hippie lawyer likely died with him. With all of this in mind, I believe Ronald Hughes died as a result of the severe weather conditions in the woods of Ventura County. The storm was bad enough to have caused flooding, and the waters could have easily rushed through the campground where Hughes was staying. 
I understand where you're coming from, but I think there's strong circumstantial evidence pointing towards murder. Between the multiple anonymous tips, Sandra Good's confession to the documentary filmmaker, and everything we know about Charles Manson, I think it's likely that Ronald Hughes died at the hands of the Manson family. Whatever the case, the real tragedy was that Hughes seemed to just be hitting his stride as a defense attorney during his time representing Leslie Van Houten. The fact that he was able to recognize Manson's manipulations and put a stop to it before the co-defendants could testify are examples of his growing intuition and skill. There's no telling how far his career could have gone had his life not been cut so tragically short. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Ronald Hughes, amongst the many sources we used, we found Helter Skelter by Vincent Bugliosi extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time... Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Spencer Fox, with writing assistance by River Donahue and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tiana Camacho, Jen Wong, Ellie Schiff, Joe Hernandez, and Tom Bauer. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. <laughs>